Good morning, Commissioned. It's such a joy to be here in front of you all today. And I'm excited to share the passage of Scripture uh, that I've been studying and that the Lord has placed on my heart today for us to dive into. Um, I've already been introduced to you all, but there was something missing from that introduction. And that is that I am the much rougher half of a beautiful marriage. Uh, This is my wife right here, Alicia, and these are our children, Elena and Fern. Many of you might already know them, um, but they are a wonderful blessing in my life. Uh, Another thing, I love you, Chatsworth Bible Study. I mean, I love all of you, but I especially love the Chatsworth Bible Study, and it's been a privilege to serve alongside my brother Mike here and to be with Gabe and Rita Pidal in their home and all of you wonderful people that come to that study every other week. And it, it also, Kene has been a joy, he might have left, but to see him grow in our Bible study. Since the first time I picked you up from the airport, Kene, uh, in my truck, you're a different man. You're more godly than you were that day. <laughs> um, if you would, please turn to John chapter 17. John 17 is our text for the day. I will read the first five verses, um, but we will just be looking at verse 1. John 17, verse 1. The Word of God says, Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, The hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, there was a day when a man asked you to show him your glory. And Lord, I ask you that same thing that Moses asked you those long epochs ago. Lord, show us your glory so that these people here can know that they have found favor in your sight through the person and the work of your son through the cross. Father, show us your glory today, please. And it is in your son's precious name that I pray. Amen. This passage of scripture that we will meditate on today is infinitely worthy of our adoration. It is infinitely worthy of our reverence. This portion of scripture has been aptly titled the great high priestly prayer. For Jesus, prayer was like breathing. He did it all throughout his life. And his last breath expended on the cross was expended in prayer. And where all other prayers of our Lord in the scriptures are but briefly mentioned, here in our passage, John the Apostle writes down what he witnessed in great detail. We have all of the marvelous, all of the marvelous wonder contained in this prayer for us here today. To summarize what this chapter contains, one commentator has says this, This is the most remarkable portion of the most remarkable book in the world. The scripture of truth given by inspiration of God contains many wonderful passages, but none more wonderful than this. It is the utterance of the mind and heart of the God man in the very crisis of his great undertaking in the immediate prospect of completing by the sacrifice of himself, the work which has been given him to do and for the accomplishment of which he had become incarnate. What a concentration of thought and affection is here in these 
these few sentences. How full of grace, how full of truth. There is a width in the conceptions with the human understanding cannot measure, a depth which it cannot fathom. There is no bringing out of these plain words all that is to be seen and felt in them. End quote. This chapter contains more than could be spoken of in our lifetime. Even this one verse is too much for the time allotted for me here today. To try to present to you everything contained in these passages would be like trying to level Mount Everest with a spade. But to give an aerial overview, chapter 17 is really part of a larger section, the, the, the farewell discourse which begins in chapter 13. And, and goes to chapter 17. But zooming into chapter 17, we see three divisions in this one chapter. In verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself. In verses 6 through 19, he prays for his disciples. And in verses 20 through 26, he prays for all the elect of all time. Throughout this chapter, Jesus takes us into the unfathomable depths of intertrinitarian communication. He speaks to his Father as the Son, and he speaks of things the scope of which encompass eternity. And narrowing the focus to the first five verses, we find that God's glory is the center is the emphasis as the Lord prays for himself. Glory simply means divine honor, divine splendor. And the gospel of John regularly has God's glory as the theme, but the first five verses of this prayer are the capstone of that glory. Look at them. Look at the first five verses, and you will see that the word glory is repeated five times in these five verses. And the first time it appears is in verse, verse 1, which is our text for today. And in verse 1, Jesus prays that his glory would be unveiled by his death, his resurrection, and ascension into glory with the Father. This prayer begins by marking the end of Jesus' ministry on earth and looks forward in anticipation for the reason that he came. The thing that would consummate the display of God's glory, the greatest work ever performed, the work of the cross. Jesus passes from preaching, where he taught of unity, love, obedience, eternal life, the mission on earth and the glory of God, to prayer, where he prays for these same things and points us to the glory of God as the ultimate display of these things, In the Trinity. And the two main themes are unity and love. Veiled in his priestly human flesh, the glory of the Son was hidden. It was concealed until the predetermined hour when the Father would tear the veil of his flesh and their glory would burst forth in all of its splendor. Deep theology is contained in this verse. And understanding it is vital to us understanding the rest of this prayer. With a solid understanding of this one verse, we can view the high priestly prayer and the work of the cross in all of its majesty. And when we are done, my prayer is that you will better understand the person and work of Jesus and the unity in the Trinity, which formulated and executed the greatest display of love attainable, love that conquered, quenched the infinite eternal wrath that we all deserve. So in John 17, verse 1, we see three expressions of unity that culminate in the glory of the cross and that should lead us to glorify God with our lives. And these three displays of unity, these three expressions of unity are this. One, unity with the mediator. Two, unity in the Godhead. And three, unity through the pact. 
The words of the second member of the Trinity as he speaks to the Father are here for us to read and in them we see deep communion and the outworking of the eternal plan of salvation. So first, let us look at the unity in the mediator in two ways. One, his unity with us and two, the unity that he has within himself. As we enter this examination of our mediator, understand that mediation is the work of a priest. And the work of a priest includes intercession and atonement. These two things were accomplished by our great high priest in perfection. So looking at our portion of text, we see the Apostle John introduce the the prayer of our Lord with these words, Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Taking that opening clause, Jesus spoke these things. In the Greek, the the order is literally these things spoke Jesus, which places the emphasis on these things. So we must ask the question, what are these things? These things is an intermediatory statement that looks back at the things which he spoke in the previous four chapters in that larger portion of this text that I uh, told you about in the introduction. So to understand what John includes in these things, turn with me to chapter 13, and we'll look at verse 1. Chapter 13, verse 1 says this, Now before the feast of Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. You see, that word, the hour, marks the beginning of the most magnificent sermon ever preached. And it also mag- marks the beginning of the mag- most magnificent prayer ever prayed. And from chapter 13, verse 1, launches the farewell discourse, the upper room discourse, or what Martin Luther referred to as his table talks. And here the omniscient Jesus knew what lie ahead. He knew that he would soon depart. He knew that it would be temporary, but he also knew that it would bring immense momentary pain to his disciples. And Jesus desires to ready his disciples, the new covenant community, for their spirit-guided mission on earth. He He begins preparing them by washing their feet. Then the king leaves his disciples with vital instructions. And in chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16, those instructions contain promises. They contain pledges, warnings, comforts, threats, and deep theological truths. But the message of Jesus in summary is that he will die. He will leave them. He will rise again. He is going back to his father in glory. And yet in his absence, they will lack nothing. The resources of heaven are at their disposal. They will get the Holy Spirit and whatever they ask for in prayer, they will receive. And by receiving, our father in heaven will be glorified. Despite the tribulation that they will face and the suffering ahead, They have hope. And the pinnacle of the upper room discourse is in the last verse of chapter 16. So on your way back to chapter 17, stop there with me. Chapter 16, verse 33. Jesus says this, These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. But take courage, I have overcome the world. He ends his night of teaching, warning, promises, and exhortations with a statement of absolute triumph. And following that statement of absolute triumph, he seals that farewell discourse with prayer. Jesus knew how to comfort men. For he had been made like his brethren in all things. Hebrews 2.17 His mercy was not ignorant. 
He is united to man fully as the only acceptable mediator must be. You ever think about this? Jesus was more like man than Adam was. Adam wasn't born. He was created. Adam never had to struggle through infancy. Adam was placed in paradise. Jesus was born in a fallen world. And Jesus was there from infancy to the grave. As Jesus marched toward Calvary, he walked with a perfect love toward man and a perfect love toward God in perfect unity with both realms. And we must recognize the essence of this interdimensional display. One moment, Jesus looks into the eyes of his disciples and he says, take courage. And the next moment, he looks into heaven and says, Father. He is the umpire that Job cried out for in Job 9.32. Centuries prior, as Job lamented, expressing the hopelessness that he felt without having that umpire, the necessity of a mediator, just like Jesus, Job says in chapter 9, verse 32, for he, God, is not a man as I am that I may answer him that we may go to court together. There is no umpire between us who may lay his hand upon us both. You see, the umpire Job needed is the one who can reconcile the divine with the dust by laying one hand on God and the other hand on man and being that just and the justifier from Romans 3.26. The mediator must be divine and Job knew that and Jesus is that mediator. And in the upper room discourse, Jesus speaks as that mediator when he spoke these things. He speaks perfectly on behalf of God as God to men to prepare men for their service to God in his absence. Jesus spoke these things horizontally, one hand on man, instructing them before he lifted his eyes to heaven and placed his hand upon his father. And moving forward, we read that and lifting up his eyes to heaven. What a natural movement. Only a man can do that. It's a magnificent movement. We often come to God in prayer with dirty mouths and soiled feet. And we find ourselves like that tax collector in Luke 18, unwilling even to lift our eyes to heaven, beating our breast and saying, be merciful, God, to me, a sinner. But Jesus lifts his eyes unashamedly. He has no impurity. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, And the boastful pride of life is not of the Father, but it is from the world. And Jesus is not of this world. He is of the Father. He is the one whose eyes are too pure to approve evil. And he looks to heaven, the heavens, his transcendent abode, the place where his throne is fixed. And we don't know what he saw when he looked there. But we do know this. The heavens declare the glory of God. And that's what this is all about. That is the chief end of this prayer, the glory of the triune God. And that is the chief end of man. And this is where we see his unity with God. Do you see how heaven and earth meet in Jesus This is a a thing that theologians call the hypostatic union. And Thomas Watson describes it like this. The incarnation of Christ is katina aria, a golden chain made up of several links of miracles. For instance, that the creator of heaven should become a creature, that eternity should be born, that he whom the heaven of heavens cannot contain should be enclosed in a womb that he who thunders in the clouds 
should cry in the cradle. He who upholds all things by the word of his power should himself be upheld. That he who is a spirit should be made flesh, that Christ should be without father and without mother, yet have both, without mother in the Godhead, without father in the manhood. That Christ being incarnate should have two natures, the divine and human, and yet but one person that the the divine nature should not be infused into the human, nor the human mixed with the divine, yet assumed into the person of the Son of God. The human nature, not God, yet one with God. Here is, I say, a chain of miracles. And that is the mediator who spoke these things. In his final sermon to his disciples before looking into heaven and praying, he is the loving mediator. He is the great high priest. Like I said, understand, he is united to man and to God perfectly, seamlessly, perpetually. He is the one who never sleeps nor slumbers. And from chapter 13 onward, Jesus never slept again. Instead, because of his indestructible life, his mediation continues forever and he is holding his priesthood permanently and he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Behold the beauty of Jesus, the mediator with whom we have unity, the umpire between God and man. How blessed are we to understand this truth? How kind is God to reveal this truth to us? For God to be a man, so as to redeem the soul, the body, the will, and all that is in man. And for God to be God, perfectly able to do so in all aspects, and in both natures, completely willing. The implications of this are very personal to all of us. Does your sin place you at times under a terrible burden of guilt, binding and enslaving you to the devil and to the power of corruption? Find hope in the mediator. He has overcome the world. In our text, Jesus is headed to the cross to make that all-sufficient atonement, that propitiatory mediation. But after his ascension, his intercession is essential to its application. For Jesus ever lives as an intercessor for that new covenant. Grace, all grace, comes through that loving mediator. And he is right now at the right hand of the Father with one hand pointing at you saying, that one is mine. God is praying for you if you're a Christian. Do you recognize that? Robert Murray McShane said this, I ought to study Christ as an intercessor. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. And when he looks down from heaven, I want my life to glorify him. Do you? I hope so. I want my life to be marked by my unity with him and saturated with love and obedience to him. I want my life to be marked by a hatred for sin. And when others look at me, I want them to see how the love of my mediator has changed me so that God is glorified. Are you knit to that mediator in every decision that you make? When you look at your children, when you look at your wife or your husband, So the mediator spoke to men. And then he lifted up to his, his eyes to heaven and he said, Father. You see that the text doesn't say he prayed, but rather he said. What confidence in prayer. Undoubtedly, 
Christ lived his whole life with his heart lifted up to his father. And there was no necessity for him to make verbal prayers out loud. But here he does it. Why? Because the disciples were sitting there listening. And in so doing, he revealed his heart to them. His prayer differs from the Lord's prayer in Matthew 6. Because John 17 is the real Lord's prayer. In, John, in, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray. But here he is praying as only he can pray. Think of this. How does the Lord's prayer begin in Matthew chapter 6? Our Father. But here G- Jesus simply says what? Father. And there is a difference. There's a difference because of the complete unity in the Godhead. Father is a word of affection. It's a word of reverence and confidence. The father-son relationship implies a likeness, an essence, and a deep understanding of one another. And God is our father, for we are sons and daughters created in his image. He knows us perfectly, but he has made himself known to us in his eternally begotten son. And because of the work of his eternally begotten son, we are adopted children, but we are not of the same essence as the father. There is a unity between the father and the son that is perfect. And when Jesus says father instead of our father, it's because his relationship is of a different kind. He is equal with the Father. Behold the Trinity. The Father generates. The Son is generated. And together with the Father, they send forth the Holy Spirit in a manner which which is described in the Scripture as breathing. We should not think of this generation as human generation because it is eternal and incomprehensible. Being generated by the Father, Jesus is like the Father, as a son should be, by definition, because they share essence. Jesus shares everything with the Father. They share the divine name, Yahweh, I am. And this is throughout the Gospel of John. I am the bread. I am the light. Before Abraham was, I am. I am the door. I am the shepherd. I am the resurrection. I am the way. I am the vine. And in John 13, 19, Jesus ends his sentence by simply saying, I am. This is the divine name spoken of by Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all who have ever called upon the name of Yahweh. They share all their attributes, Colossians 2, 9. They share all the works, John five seventeen to 19. The Son and the Spirit are just as responsible for the creation of the world as any other work. They did it all in perfect unity, one act conducted by three persons. The Father speaks, the Son is the word spoken, and the Spirit is the breath. They share the honor because they are co-equal, John 1, 1. And though distinguished from each other, They are not different. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says this, speaking of Jesus, who is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power, who having accomplished cleansing for sins, sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. The son fully and completely reveals the father. And you might be saying right now, that's a lot of theology and it sounds great. But what does that have to do with our text? Well, when Jesus says Father, there is a unity between he and the Father that we can't even begin to comprehend. But as far as it is revealed to us in Scripture, we must acknowledge it. Because just like the work of creation, 
which was done in complete unity. The work of salvation was done in unity and culminates on the cross. And for us to see the incarnation correctly or understand how this prayer works or even to follow the following verses, we must understand that there is order within the Godhead. There is a personal order that shapes how the persons relate to each other and how they work together in this world. The Father always leads the way. The Son always follows. The Son cannot act independently of the Father, not for lack of power, but because it would conflict with their relation. They act together by their common divine nature. All is of the Father. All is by the Son. They share everything. Therefore, there is no subordination in the divine essence. How can Christ give eternal life to all who he, who he wills, but do nothing but what the Father wills? Because they have one will. The Father and the Son share one divine will. How can the Son say, the Father is greater than I, while also saying, he who has seen me has seen the Father? Because of his two natures. And in his human nature, he perfectly submitted to the Father's will so that his soul never rebelled against God And that active obedience is imputed to the believer. The distinctions among the divine persons, they do not separate them, but bind them together. For the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit indwell each other. Interpenetration, complete unity. They are intimately united. John writes in chapter 1, verse 18, The only begotten Son is in the bosom of the Father. That word bosom is kalpos in the Greek. And it means a place of intimate friendship. It is a physical picture of a deep relational union. So this matters. This matters because this is what love looks like. Love is unity. Unity is love and God is love. And there is no more glorious union than that between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Their equality in deity makes it perfect, infinite fullness expressed in their love given to each other and perfect worthiness to receive that perfect love. And if you are a Christian, They chose you in perfect unity before the foundations of the earth. And he is your father too. Not by generation, but by regeneration. By way of application, I'll summarize what we've just said and bring it to our hearts with this quote. Hanley Mule says this, When Jesus says, Father, and the Christian stands by his side and listens, he knows that the eternal and ultimate God is personal. The poor sinful man looking up into the heights immeasurable finds and touches with trembling but real faith close beside him no mere abstract cause, no blind tendency, no simple nature personified or deified by fancy or by wish, but one who knows, wills, and loves unspeakably with a fatherly tenderness that cannot be imagined. As father, he is personally holy, personally faithful, personally gracious caretaker. He is father, nothing less than all that can be denoted or implied by that dear and loving term. He is father, first of our Lord Jesus Christ, and then of the needy sinner who repents. He is father, for he is living author of our personal life. Father, for our very nature was made in his image. Father, for he has begotten us again unto a living hope. He is father, so that we are to to him immeasurably more than even the work of his hands. We are to that eternal love, his dear and precious possession. His delights are with the sons of men. 
as father. He pities the child of this mortal family with a pity that only a divine heart could know, could know. Our father, our Lord says, holy father, righteous father, loving father. End quote. And we have that father, the one who delights in the sons of men. Isn't that just so sweet and so comforting that we can come to our father in prayer? He could have designated himself by any other term, but this is the one that he chose. This is how he wants us to call upon him. Father, our father. Jesus modeled that for us. He said, say, our father. The Heidelberg Catechism teaches the Christian to confess that since God is our Father through Jesus Christ, He will provide me with all things necessary for soul and body, and further, that He will make whatever evils He sends upon me in this valley of tears turn out for my advantage, for He is able to do it, being Almighty God, and willing to do it, being my Father. When Jesus looks to the heavens, He says, Father, And he may seem estranged from God, but he is not. He cannot be. He looks to the heavens and he is reminded of that hour that they together designated in eternity, which brought him to this moment. That hour for which he was sent into the creation that he made. He looks up knowing that his hour has come knowing that the hour had come for the Son of Man to be lifted up from the earth so that he could draw all men to himself, being glorified in his death so that the Father could be glorified. There was an eternal agreement between the united Godhead, and that is what Jesus is talking about when he says, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. In these final hours of the life of Christ, as the hour of crucifixion approaches, we have seen how Jesus is our mediator, united to God and man perfectly. And we have seen how deep that love runs. And we have seen the perfect unity in the Godhead. Now we come to our final point, unity through the pact, which culminates in the glory of the cross. The hour has come. Throughout the Gospel of John, we have heard of this hour, right? The author, John, keeps us in suspense as that hour is referenced. First mentioned in chapter 2, verse 4, Jesus tells his mother, my hour has not yet come. And in telling her that, he shows that every moment is under his sovereign reign. When Jesus speaks to the Samaritan woman in chapter 4, he says an hour is coming and now is. Several times in the Gospel of John and the other Gospels, we see the Pharisees want to kill Jesus, but his hour has not yet come. But when the pre-appointed time was present, it is announced. Look at chapter 12. Verse 23. Chapter 12, verse 23 says, And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. You see, the seed is here. The one promised in Genesis 3.15 has fallen to the earth and it is time for him to die, sprout and bear much fruit. The hour has come for the atoning work of the mediator, which would glorify God. We have already discussed the intercession of the mediator, but now, we come to that sacrifice which is required for propitiation. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Yes, the life of Jesus did bring glory to God. 
but his death perfected it. And the passion of Christ will produce the fruit of eternal life for many. And some of you know exactly what that means. In this section, we see the hour which was defined by God's decree and set down by the appointed council of the Trinity. This is not blind fate. There's no astrology involved or chance. This is God's sovereign wisdom from eternity. This phrase, the hour has come, alludes to a pact within the Godhead, an agreement that that took place before the existence of any matter. The Father's selection of the Son, His incarnation, His death, atonement, resurrection, the Spirit's role, it all happened in eternity. Write these texts down and you can look at them later. I can't go through them all, all right now. Luke twenty two twenty three, Psalm 110, Isaiah 53, 12, and 2 Timothy 1, 9. They all clearly show us this hour. And in Titus 1, Verse 2, we read, In the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. You see, our transaction with God in Christ has its origin and basis in an agreement within the Godhead when everything was predetermined. The united will in the Godhead eliminates the necessity of a conversation between the Father and Son. They don't have discourses or conversations about what their will will accomplish. But Puritan John Flavel illustrates this for us very well in this script that he wrote between the Father and the Son regarding this eternal pact. And the Father says this, My son, here is a company of poor, miserable souls. They have utterly undone themselves and now lie open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them or will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them. What shall be done for these souls? And thus Christ answers, O my Father, such is my love to and pity for them, that rather than they shall perish eternally, I will be responsible for them as their surety. Bring in all thy bills, that I may see what they owe thee. Lord, bring them all in, that there may be no after-reckoning with them. At my hand shalt thou require it. I will rather choose to suffer thy wrath than they should suffer it. Upon me, Father, upon me be all their debt. And the Father says, But my son, if thou undertake for them, thou must reckon to pay the last might. Expect no abatements. If I spare them, I will not spare you. And the son says, Content, Father, let it be so. Charge it all upon me. I am able to discharge it and through it prove a kind of undoing to me. Though it impoverish all my riches, empty all my treasures, yet I am content to undertake it. This is the grace of our Lord Jesus Do you see how he so willingly did this? This pact referred to is sweet assurance for all of us that every moment in the decree of God is governed. Every moment in our lives, the moment of your conversion, the measure of grace that you would receive, the comforts, the holiness that you would attain, the sufferings and the tribulations, the steps you would take in this life. They're all predetermined. God operates with unalterable precision. So Jesus says, glorify the Son, that the Son may glorify you, because the hour has come. We could not pray for glory like he has prayed. He's not asking for something to be returned to him that he had given up. Does the sun in the sky cease to be the sun when it is behind a cloud? It does not lose its brightness or its heat. It is only veiled by the cloud. Jesus already had the glory. It's now time for it to be unveiled. Essentially, Jesus is saying 
crucify me, Father. He's saying, glorify me that I may glorify you. He prays for the Father to take him to the cross, through the cross, out of the grave, into heaven, and to sit him at his right hand and to crown him with many diadem of glory. He prays for glory, a reciprocal glory that shows us that harmony, that unity only attainable by the triune God. The absolute perfections of the Trinity demonstrate selflessness and honor. The greatest hour ever to happen was appointed before time even existed when the, when the Trinity's full glory was already on display. The hour when the eternal Lord of glory would be made sin for his people and bear, bear the holy wrath of a sin-hating God. The hour that defied time. The hour that would redeem all the saints before and after that hour. The hour that was foretold in many prophecies over thousands of years. An hour without parallel. The hour that the serpent would bruise the heel of the woman's seed. The hour when God would be the worm from Psalm 22. When the sword of justice would crush the guiltless one. The hour when the wrath of God would be justified. The hour when the sun in the sky, the heavenly timekeeper would go black. The hour when the earth would quake and the dead would rise and the angels would sing. And the hour in which man would be reunited with God. And an hour which would bring to all eternity glory to God in the highest. Glorify your son that the Son may glorify you. You see, through this pact, love is displayed and unity is restored. And look at the result in chapter 17, verse 22. Jesus continues to pray. And he says this, The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. This is how he's praying for you right now. To the disciples, the hour was one of great tragedy and mourning. There was no honor to them in dying on the cross, but to the Son, And the Father and the Spirit, it meant full glory, unveiled glory. And we have seen how unity that we have with the mediator and the unity in the Trinity and their unified work in the pact, which culminated on the cross, has united us with God. And it should unite us with each other. Therefore, I, a prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. Put on love, which is the perfect bond in unity. I'll leave you with this. In Hawaii, where we moved from, we lived in a small studio under somebody's house, about 50 feet away from a private beach. And when you walked out the front door, You faced south. And out in front of us, you'd see an island called Lanai. To the left, you'd see Maui, and to the right was Oahu. The islands were spaced out a good distance, so there was open ocean diagonally in both directions. And and most days, the wind would rip through that channel, churning up the water. But on some mornings, I would come out there to watch the sunrise. 
and there would not be a breath of wind. There was a stillness and a calm tranquility that must have been like how John felt when he lay his head in the bosom of Jesus. Not a breath of wind, not a wave, not a ripple on the ocean. The water was like glass, as if the world had stopped orbiting the sun and stopped spinning on its axis, as if not a creature on land or in water moved. And the sky would be glowing with a fiery orange and a glacier blue which plunged into purple. And golden white wisps of clouds would be appearing to carry their own light as the sun began to fill the firmament with radiance. The darker portions of the sky still housed fading stars. Everything that was reflected above was reflected below perfectly, clearly, And when you looked at the water, you would think it possible to dive into the sky. The ocean and the vastness of heaven, so far apart, but in that image, united. The sky and the water, completely distinct, and yet some mysterious union to behold. Only God could paint such a lovely image. And you had to glorify him when you looked at it. That kind of unity between heaven and earth is what we want our lives to look like. May the lamb receive the reward of his suffering, starting with me. Let's pray. Our Father, let it not be said of any one of us that we withheld anything from you. May we be knit together in unity, the unity that we see in the Godhead by drawing near to you, Lord, in everything we do. I pray that these people have been encouraged and equipped by looking at the unity of our mediator, the unity in the Godhead, and knowing that they have assurance in the pact which has culminated in the cross and resulted in our unity with you. Thank you, God. In your son's precious name, amen.